Let's pray. Father, how sweet it is to sing of the risen King, to sing of Christ our Lord. And also, Lord, to be reminded that we are those who have taken up a cross to follow the King. And because He is King, all is well. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we study your word. Lord, help us to see wonderful things in this passage. We pray that you would take your word and plant it deep within our hearts. And Lord, that we would be changed as we behold the Messiah's messenger and through him behold the Messiah himself. Lord, help us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, where we will continue our study that we began last week through this extraordinary book, and I told myself I was not going to say anything about the pulpit being gone. (laughs) This is so strange. If you're visiting for the first time, we apologize. This is not normally our pulpit. Come back next week and you'll see what it's really like. Well, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 to 8 of Mark chapter 1. And what we'll see in these verses is that the good news of Jesus the Messiah actually begins with the prophetic ministry of a strange man named John. And right from the start, Mark connects Jesus' ministry with the ministry of this man, John. And what we want to discover together this morning is the significance of that. Why would you begin the most extraordinary story about the most extraordinary man to have ever lived with details about such a strange man who did strange things in a strange place? And the answer to that question is tied up with the identity of this strange man. What we will see is that in God's eternal plan, the gospel of Jesus was inaugurated with the prophetic work of the promised messenger. And this messenger was named John the Baptist. And Mark spends, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spends the first seven verses of his gospel account of the Lord Jesus focused on this strange promised messenger. So, this morning, we will also be looking at this messenger, the messenger of the Messiah, John the Baptist. So would you stand with me as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And be seated. It is something of a strange passage because the, the key character here is such a, an interesting figure. And if we're going to understand why Mark begins with this focus, we need to understand something, something of the atmosphere in the first century A.D. At this point in history, the people of God were in a position of longing. They were longing for relief. And they had experienced tremendous suffering, beginning all the way back with the Babylonian exile, and then it was traded for the Persian rule, and then after the Persian rule, there was the Greek oppression of God's people, and then finally came Roman rule, under which the people of God lived during the time of Jesus. And through all of this, the people of God were anxiously looking for what came to be called the consolation of Israel. That's the language that's used of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He's a holy, godly man. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. The phrase literally is, means the comfort of Israel. And evidently, At this point in history, righteous, godly people were looking for God's promise of consolation. Someone to come and bring the comfort they needed and to do so by virtue of being the messianic king. Apparently, the title consolation of Israel had become a common way of speaking about the Messiah king who would come and bring peace and comfort to Israel. It's drawn directly from Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 and 2, which we read before, and I'll read them again. This is where the phrase, consolation of Israel, comes from. It says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Peace has come. Tell these suffering, exiled people that the war is over. Take a a breath. It's over. It's settled. Peace has come. Tell them that her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is, that the punishment, the thing that led them into exile in the first place, has been dealt with. She has received from the Lord's hand the double, the exact payment for her sin. The exile then is over. This is Isaiah 40. So we're 700 years later in Mark chapter 1. And although in the first century Israel had returned to their land, they were in effect still in exile in the sense that they were under oppressive rulers. Her warfare was not over. 
Right? They were anxiously awaiting the Messiah, the Davidic king, who would finally restore sovereignty to the nation of Israel and bring everlasting peace. That's what they were longing for. And so the tenor of the godly at this point was one of anticipation, one of longing for the Messiah's appearance. Godly people like Simeon knew, though, that according to the Old Testament, before this would happen, before the Messiah would come, something like a forerunner would come along to herald his appearance. And we see this in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then, then the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, will be revealed. Based on the word of God, the people of God were looking for the one who would come ahead of the Messiah King to herald his appearing. The one who would come and say, look, here he is. Here is the Messiah. Here is Yahweh. Here is God in the flesh. Behold your God. All of that would be inaugurated with a messenger. And they all knew it. And so, the good news then of the Messiah's appearing wouldn't begin until the moment the messenger appeared. And up to this point, everything was hope. We hope He comes. We hope He comes. We hope the Messiah comes to make it right. But as soon as the messenger comes around the corner, as it were, and says, He's coming! All of a sudden, the gospel, the good news, has arrived. It's the beginning of the good news. This is why Mark begins his gospel with this line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It begins with John the Baptist's appearing. What immediately follows, we see, verses 2 to 8, uh, testifies to the fact that when, John, when Mark says the beginning, he's talking about this inaugural work of John the, of John the Baptist. And when the messenger comes, the good news begins, right? namely that the king has appeared. And, and we actually see this throughout the New Testament, uh, especially we see it in Acts chapter 1. When the apostles are looking for a replacement for Judas, this is the criteria that they give for the man. Verse 21, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So someone who's come, been with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Verse 22, Beginning with the baptism of John. Until the day he was taken out from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in the minds of the apostles, the good news of Jesus began with John's appearing, this strange man. And it ended with the ascension of Christ. 
Now, that's not to say the gospel is over, and it's not to say the Old Testament doesn't uh, tell us that good news is coming, but it tells us that when you think about the gospel, the ministry of Jesus, it begins in the mind of Mark with John the Baptist appearing, and it ends with the resurrection and ascension. And this is consistent without, throughout the New Testament where we see that Mark, or where we see that the apostles say John the Baptist is such a key figure because of his inaugural work. And so Mark naturally begins by pointing out this promised messenger. Here's the figure who starts it all. He's the domino that gets the whole thing going. So let's take some time to think about him. Who is this messenger of the Messiah? Well, He was not an ordinary man, that's for sure. And I want you to notice a few things about him this morning. First, let's look at his character. His character. The character of the messenger. And there are a few features about his character that we'll think about, that Mark wants us to look at. First, the messenger, John the Baptist, was a great prophet. He was a great prophet. This much is clear from the opening reference in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now this is a quote from Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1. And you say, well, why does Mark say that it's Isaiah the prophet who says this? Well, the short answer is that in verses 2 to 3, Mark has actually pulled together something like a composite quote. One verse is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The other, as we'll see, verse 3, is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Are you tracking with me? I just said a lot of stuff really quickly. Verses 2 and 3, verse 2 is Malachi 3, 1. Verse 3 is Isaiah 40, verse 3. Mark has put these together, and for brevity's sake... He, he attributes it all to the more well-known prophet, Isaiah. And this was common practice in antiquity. If you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to do that later. But we want to focus this morning on the phrase, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. My messenger ahead of you. Working backwards, to be even more confusing, let's answer, Who is the you of verse 2. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. Who is the you referring to of verse 2? Amen, brother. All right, next point. <laughs> uh, listen to this quotation from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I, this is Yahweh God speaking, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Interesting. Mark says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Malachi 3 says, Yahweh speaking, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Clue number one. Second. Look at 1.3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of The Lord. This is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, that says this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of 
of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Malachi 3, Isaiah 40 are both pointing to the coming of God Himself to relieve the pain and suffering of His people and to inaugurate the Messiah's reign. God then is the you of verse 2. Now, we need to let that settle for just a minute. What does this say about Jesus, the Messiah? He's God. Clearly, the one for whom the way is being prepared is God, Yahweh Himself. And if John the Baptist is truly the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus is God. Now, if you were here this morning and think maybe these Christians have made a bigger deal out of this person, Jesus, than they ought to have, have done. Maybe Jesus was not actually God, but He was a good man who was so loved by the people that they dreamed up the idea of Him being God. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, do we really know that Jesus was God? Well, friend, if the text before us this morning teaches us anything. It teaches us that the man, Jesus the Messiah, was in fact Yahweh incarnate. And John is clearly, John the Baptist here, moving on, is clearly identified as my messenger. In other words, John the Baptist is the messenger of Yahweh. He's the messenger, in another sense, of the Messiah. He's my messenger. He's a great prophet, and the word, wording of messenger tells us that he's a prophet who belongs to God. He's my messenger. He belongs to the Lord. And this is John 1.6, right? There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He was sent from God. This is John this is John the Baptist. He was sent from God. And in the context here, right, we're saying that the Messiah, the messenger of the Messiah, was a great prophet. The context is of paramount importance. When John the Baptist appears on the scene as the messenger of God, there has not been a prophet for something like 400 years. Right? 400 years of divine silence with no prophetic voice. Well, 400 years before John the Baptist appears, another prophet had stood and called Israel to repentance for her sin. And that prophet, do you know it? Was named Malachi. Interestingly, the name Malachi means my messenger. And Malachi's message for the people of Israel was essentially judgment for their continual sin against God. But the book of Malachi concludes with a promise that one day in the future, future, Israel would repent and then the Messiah himself would be revealed. Now we have already seen that Mark quotes Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1 and that according to Malachi 3, before the final day, God would send his messenger. But in, here, the messenger is sort of anonymous. Who is this messenger? Who will the messenger be? 
Well, at the end of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, God reveals the identity of this great messenger. And it's, it's paramount if we're going to understand who John the Baptist really was. Listen to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. It's the closing of the Old Testament. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And just notice what he does. This is verse 6. I just want you to tuck this away and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. He will, verse 6, restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. And that's the last note in the Old Testament before 400 years of divine silence. And then, remarkably, and we have to see this, possibly in the same location where Elijah was caught up and disappeared, a man appears named John the Baptist. And Mark cites Isaiah 43 to describe him. He appeared this way. A voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. The voice to break 400 years of silence was the voice of John the Baptist. The great messenger of the Messiah. The great Elijah-like prophet who would come prepare the way for the Messiah. When people hear this strange man preaching and they see him the way he's dressed and where he is, they think this is Elijah. Just like Malachi foretold. Elijah has reappeared. And they were right. At least in one sense. Listen to Jesus. His analysis of John. This man John. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. That in and of itself is enough claim of Jesus' deity that we can close the books on it and move on. Jesus recognized himself to be Yahweh, who, who was coming behind the messenger. This is the one. John the Baptist was the one of whom it was written. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Just as it is written. John the Baptist was the messenger of the Messiah, meaning that he was a great prophet like Elijah. And he appeared just as God had said. My friends, there is a lot of implications. Uh, There are a lot of implications from this. But one, at least, maybe two, 
First, Jesus is God. Second, trust his word. But not only was the messenger a great prophet, he was also a man of the wilderness. Some of you want to say amen and you're restraining yourself. I know who you are. He was a man of the wilderness. Now that may seem utterly irrelevant to you. But notice the amount of time that Mark spends on this. Right? Here's just a Bible study rule. Right? When you're reading a narrative, if the, if the author, the inspired author, spends a lot of time talking about something, it's probably important. And Mark references the wilderness in verse 3. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And then in verse 6, this is where it gets interesting. We're given this detailed description about John's clothing and dietary habits. Look at verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. I know when we read the account, you were thinking, I wonder what John wore. I wonder what his wardrobe was like. Well, his clothing was strange. His behavior was strange. His diet was strange. And the detail that Mark gives about this man and his diet and clothing is also strange. And of all the things that you can say about John the Baptist, why talk about this? Isn't it striking? Why? Why? What is all this about? Well, in one sense... John's behavior was certainly strange according to the standards of his own day. Right? John the Baptist was a strange guy to us, but he was very strange even in his own day. Obviously, John was not a part of the cultural elite. He was not a part of the culture, period. Right? In fact, the best way probably to describe this man is that he lived off the grid. Right? Uh, he was out in the wilderness, a, a, a dry, this is like the desert, right? a dry um, lifeless depression, probably below sea level, somewhere out in the Mediterranean world. Um, he lived out there. He was living off the land. And verse 6 says that he was eating locusts and wild honey. Uh, one, one guy said that he would probably have shopped at Whole Foods. <laughs> he was eating locusts and wild honey. Locusts are grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. That's what, that's what he was eating. So here's the application. Let your children eat grasshoppers. <laughs> Just let them do it. My son wants to. Let them eat the grasshoppers. Uh, his diet was something like honey-dipped grasshoppers. Sounds appetizing. You know, it's something that's interesting. Grasshoppers are actually, um, of all the bugs mentioned, the only type of insect permitted by the Mosaic Law to be eaten is grasshoppers. And, and you can go back in antiquity and you can find different recipes for how to eat them. Most of the time they were uh, roasted or boiled. If you're interested, we can talk about that later too. <laughs> but look also at his clothing, verse 6. Luke tells us that John the Baptist lived in the desert right? until the day of his public appearance. He was in the desert, wilderness area. That means that somewhere after he came of age, John set out to live in the desert, and the clothing he wore was the traditional clothing of someone who lived in the wilderness. He was a wild man. He probably would have worn like buckskins or something in, in a, maybe our day. I don't know if people do that anymore. but um, he, he was a wild man who, who dressed 
like a man who lived in the wilderness. He was clothed, verse 6, with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Why this information? Well, John's clothing was shockingly reminiscent of Elijah's. Listen to how Elijah dressed from 2 Kings 1.8. He was described as a man wearing a garment of hair with a leather girdle or belt around his waist. Wearing a garment of hair, or you could translate it a hairy man. Right? Or something about hair and leather and being in the wilderness. Right? It all came together for Elijah. And it also came together for John the Baptist. This is what he was wearing. This is what he was like. And the connection here is not so that we know what it's like to live in the wilderness. But the connection is, Mark is wanting you to see, wow, this is amazing. Just as it is written, here is a man who walks like Elijah, he talks like Elijah, he, dre- he dresses like Elijah, and he's even, even eating like Elijah. This is striking. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to get you to where you look at Malachi 3 and you think, he is the messenger. And then you look at Malachi 4 and you think, wow, he's Elijah. If that's true, then who is the person that he's announcing? Right? The goal, I think, for Mark, at least in one sense, is is for us to see that the New Testament, the events surrounding Jesus' appearance, John the Baptist, the resurrection, his death, the ascension, all of these things happened just as it was written. Look at Mark 1. I want to just show you something really quickly. Mark 1, verse 2. As it is written, literally, just as it is written, just as it is written. All right, so you have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's something like your title. Then straightway, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and imagine a parenthesis, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, just as it is written, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Just as it is written, verse 2, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Mark is saying, he was a strange man in a strange place with strange habits, but it was just as God said it would be. Therefore, the man he's pointing out and saying this is the one must be the Messiah King. John the Baptist embodied all of the prophecies, or at least both of the prophecies, of Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 43. He was a great prophet. He was a man of the wilderness. So that ultimately he could be a voice, a prophet, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that brings us to the call of the messenger. The call of the messenger. What was John the Baptist called to do? Well, clearly, from verse 2, he was called to prepare the way for the Messiah. In the ancient world, it was customary for kings to send messengers before them to prepare their way. Often they would be called on to remove 
physical obstacles, fill in potholes, other obstructions that might get in the way of the king's caravan or his envoy. But mainly, the messenger was to go before the king and announce his coming and arrival. This is what the Messiah's messenger would do as well. According to Malachi 3, he would prepare the way or clear the way. Isaiah 40, he would make ready the way of the Lord. He would make his paths straight. But how, how did John the Baptist prepare the way? He wasn't filling in potholes in the road, right? Well, he did it a couple of ways. Primarily, he did it through his preaching ministry. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, your translation may say preaching and baptizing. The emphasis here is on preaching. The proclamation. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness. What do preachers do? Well, they cry out. And John the Baptist was crying out in the wilderness. Through his preaching, John the Baptist called the people to repentance in preparation for the coming of King Jesus. And the preparation, as we saw in Malachi 4, verse 6, the preparation primarily was the preparation of the heart. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance. That's an interesting phrase. We don't typically speak about a baptism of repentance, and that's for good reason, because it was a unique baptism only for John. So we don't need to implement that today. It was a baptism that coincided with an individual's repentance. They would repent, John the Baptist would baptize them, and their baptism would be a a symbol, uh, it would be a picture of their heart repentance. In verse 5, we see that all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem are coming out to this man. John is preaching, and the whole world seems to be coming out to him. And when they hear him preach, they're brought to a place where they're convinced and convicted of their sins, and they cry out in repentance. It's amazing. Here's a man... Talk about a a church growth strategy, right? Here's a man in the desert preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, preaching the law probably. Repent. This is God's rules. You've broken them. You're in exile. This punishment, Roman rule, is because of our sin. Repent so that seasons of blessing may come again. And they see it. They know their own hearts are wicked, and they repent. And they come in droves to hear him preach. In the middle of the desert. They were not coming uh, just to hear a man. They were coming, it seems, because they were compelled to hear this messenger so that they could hear his words and they they were believing, at least in part, in confessing and repenting. His preaching was powerful. I mean, imagine the preaching of John the Baptist. There are some preachers in history where you think, man, it would have been wonderful to hear them preach. Spurgeon. Amen? It would have been great to hear Spurgeon preach. John Knox. But John the Baptist. I mean, here's a man 
who has the courage to call out the king. Right? He stands before the king and eventually calls him, calls, um, it eventually, what's the word I'm looking for? It eventually causes him his life, right? His head, he loses his head for it. But he feared God more than he feared King Herod, and he stood before the king and proclaimed the truth that Herod needed to repent. John the Baptist was a bold man, and when they heard his preaching, they were resolved to turn from their sin and follow God in a fresh way. The indicator of their repentance was their baptism into the Jordan River. This was a one-time baptism, and it reflected, it was a reflection of a commitment to follow God earnestly. That's what this baptism was. So John's preparatory work was to go ahead of Jesus and preach. And when the people heard his preaching, they repented, and then he baptized them. All of this was preparatory work for the Messiah to come. So he was called to prepare the way. He did this by proclaiming the word and bringing the people of Israel to repentance. There's one last vital aspect of John's ministry that Mark wants us to see. It was not only to called to prepare the way by preaching the word, but he was also to point to the Messiah and then disappear. He was to proclaim the arrival of the king and then get out of the way. Here's the greatest man to have ever lived. Just imagine that. The greatest man, Jesus says, to have ever lived. He's given one life and he's called by God to spend it in the desert. <laughs> and he's called by God to preach a message that he, he probably didn't enjoy preaching. And then, at the end of it, he's called to disappear. Get out of the way. His ministry was swallowed up by the ministry of Jesus. And look at verses 7 and 8. Seven and eight. He was preaching, preaching and saying... After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this essentially was the content of John's preaching. In verse 7, he essentially says, Jesus is way greater than me. Jesus is far greater than me. Remember, the crowds were flocking to this man to hear him preach. They were coming in droves. He was, by all accounts, the greatest man to have ever lived. Yet hear his message. This was his life motto from John 3.30. Actually, sorry, verse 7. John, Mark 1, verse 7. After me is coming one who is mightier than I. This is what he was telling everyone. You think I'm great but there's coming someone behind me who is far greater than me. In verse 7, he says, I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. To remove a person's sandals was a lowly task that was fitting only for a slave. In fact, the Talmud says that the disciple of the rabbi must do for him everything a slave would do except... Remove his sandals. 
John is placing himself below the level of a slave. He's not even worthy enough to function as the Messiah's slave. Though Jesus says, this is the greatest man who's ever lived. This is tremendous. And it tells us something about the greatness of the one who would come after John. The greatest man who ever lived laid down his life on the road so that the Messiah could come smoothly and be received. He is worthy of your life. Verse 7, he was far greater than me. But verse 8, he says this, not only is he far greater than me, but his ministry is far greater than mine. Look at verse 8. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here John contrasts his water baptism with the powerful ministry of Jesus who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's water baptism was nothing in compared to the baptism that Jesus would accomplish. The result of Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit on the individual was the accomplishment of true spiritual cleansing and internal transformation that would result in a right relationship with God. That's what Jesus would do. Everything John did was purely symbolic. Jesus would be the substance. He would transform not just their exterior, but he would transform the heart. To be clear, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's the baptism that everyone who bows the knee to this Messiah receives. Bow the knee to the Messiah, believe on Him, and you receive this baptism. Alright, so in closing. So John's call was to preach the Word. Right? He was preaching the Word. He was pointing to Christ and getting out of the way. That's how we could summarize it. John's call was to preach the Word, point to Christ, and get out of the way. That's a pretty good synopsis of the Christian life, right? Preach the word, point to Christ, get out of the way. In John 3, verse 30, John summarized his life goal with this sentence. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is to say, the glory, the honor, the focus of my life must increasingly be upon Jesus and less and less upon me. Is that true of you? The focus of my life must increasingly be upon Jesus and less and less upon me. That is humility. Or at least the foundational pillar of humility. It's coming to grips and even being satisfied with inattention. With being forgotten as long as Jesus is being recognized and praised. It's a contentedness with disappearing for Christ's sake. Are you, are you content to disappear for Christ's sake? Or must everyone know about your accomplishments? The person who is humble is willing to take on any task that will increase the glory of Jesus. God is not calling you to move out into a desert and preach a very painful message. John gladly did that. 
And we should gladly do that. But John's life is a model of what contentedness would look like if God did call us to that. Because the foundational issue is that of humility. It's a self-focus. David Wells captures it well when he writes, Humility is that freedom from ourself, which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation, and yet have joy and delight. How could John the Baptist have joy and delight in the desert? Well, he knew he was fulfilling the purpose of God in his time. He had forgotten himself. And he knew that the one to whom he had entrusted everything was the great Messiah who ultimately would make all well. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that our life is to be one of entire submission laid down for the glory of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to lay ourselves down for your sake. Help us to have greater faith in your word that everything has unfolded just as it is written. And help us, Lord, to bow more earnestly, lower to the ground before our Messiah. Lord, he is worthy. You are worthy of everything we have. And so we pray, Lord, that you would receive that which you deserve. And Lord, what we have to offer is only that which you have already given. And Lord, we praise you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.